Hi, my name is Nikki Adsedbell. I'm here today to talk about Hot Chili. I'm chairman of Hot Chili. I joined the company as an independent director at the start of this year and uh, merged into the chairman role in March of this year. And for those of you who are unaware of the company, it's it's a deeply undervalued. Everybody in the mining sector says we're undervalued, but Hot Chili is listed in Australia with a secondary listing in the TSXV and with one of the largest undeveloped resources that are in the hands of a junior that I'm aware of today. And the key project is the Costa Fuego hub in the low elevation area of Chile. And hopefully we're going to be talking about the company today with some tough questions from the Stephen Secure of mining. Well, shucks. Thank you very much, <laughs> uh, Nikki. Now, could, you, could you have me on board? Um, like your reputation precedes you, um, um, but I'm intrigued to understand why you chose to come aboard this company and what was the brief when you did step in there? Because something needed to change. Yeah, so in in a sector where we're all attracted by deep value, I suppose that was one of the first elements that intrigued me. And as I was doing my due diligence on the copper on on hot chili, just segue briefly into copper. I've drunk the Kool Aid on copper. I'm a very very big believer in the commodity. Uh, I think there's a very good argument that incentive pricing has to escalate enormously. And I'm putting it out there: eight dollar copper at some time in the next three years. So, and as I looked around the universe and and looked at companies, is yes, there are companies that have got a copper assets, but those assets may vary in terms of their reality. And just because you have a project doesn't mean that ultimately you become a mine. And so reality for someone like myself, I suppose, who's technical, who understands the risk reward of our sector, that was a key factor. And perhaps more importantly for me, was the team and I've given talks on investing in the sector and project is very, very important, but team is also very important. And when you're in another country, we're very, very guilty, particularly us Anglophones out there of going into another country and not understanding the regulatory environment, not understanding the cultural environment, not having understanding how to execute within a country. And so what also attracted me to Hot Chile was the fact that uh, Christian has built a superb in-country team comprised of Chilean nationals. That leading the charge is Jose Silva, uh, very well connected in the country. He's had a long-term relationship with Chile. And so that mutual, I think, working relationship and also an ability that you listen to the people on the ground is a very key de-risking element for me. And as I was speaking to the directors on the board, so we have a Chilean on the board, again, very, very important. When you're in another country, as an investor, if you don't have representatives of that country as a single asset company on the board and in the senior management team, I think you should be quite concerned. And so on the people side of it, I felt like it ticked that box. And then when I was looking at the history of Hot Chili, uh, Hot Chili has had some struggles. Obviously, it's been around for a period of time and it experienced the near death knell that many of us did in the downturn of the last cycle. And I feel like any, any management team that has experienced very bad times but has come out of the other side of that uh, still with the company and not only with the company as have made the company a lot, lot stronger with the acquisition of Cordadera and turning this into really a behemoth in the arms of a junior. That takes a certain amount of grit and character. And, and we were just discussing this pre the recording started is that anybody that can stick it through the hard times as well, uh, that also attracted me. And, and I thought, well, what I could potentially bring to the table as the company got its secondary listing, I, I think that I can talk a little bit about Australia being culturally Australian, although I haven't lived there for over 20 years. Uh, and Canada is that North America is more of a natural exchange, I think, for the company. And I think Australian investors can be a little bit parochial and can be a little bit focused in terms of what they like to see. And there's not this kind of asset base in 
in uh, in Australia. So yes, North America is a natural exchange, but also it's not the magic bullet. And so I felt what I could help bring to the table is help increase the level of awareness of the company. For, for a company that has such a large asset, it has really surprised me of of how the lack of awareness of hot chili. And if you look around the investable universe, if the people are right and the project is right and the thing that you really have to spend time on and fix is awareness and promotion, to me that's somewhat low-hanging fruit. And so I felt like it had all the key ingredients. It's been de-risked in many ways, big believer in the commodity, big resource. We have flexibility and optionality with our strategy, and I think that we've shown this as this year has evolved. And then another element that uh, really attracted me to the company, and I think this is really, really underappreciated, is this company has taken a very long-term view. Ten years ago, the team said, we think water is going to be exogenous risk in Chile. And we all know that it is. We've had mining projects halted. We've had mines halted in Chile because of uh, issues around water security. And they started that process of securing water rights and took seven years to do that. And that alone is worth a material amount of money. And so this willingness to take a long-term view and then execute over that view and serially de-risk this project over the last decade that again is is something that I would say is quite rare to see in a management team. But isn't that part of the problem? It's just taken a long time to kind of get here. Because if I'm looking at how do I evaluate you compared to the peers in Chile, um, you're right. You, you kind of look undervalued. I'm trying to I'm trying to I'm trying to work out why because you've got a huge resource. The grade is okay, but nevertheless the the resource the resource is, is large. Um, people are discounting you. Have you kind of got to the bottom of the why yet? Is it just a case of People don't aren't sure of the, the the board and the management team's ability to bring this thing through. I, I I honestly think it's it's lack of awareness. It's and and those people that are aware of hot chili, they remember hot chili mark one. They and and it's it's up to our job to make it as easy as possible for the everybody to be aware of what this company has done and has achieved. And maybe a criticism that can be laid at this company's door is that we have done a, a maybe a, a job that. Uh, a, a job that can be approved upon in that area. And so as I look around, as people are going, okay, if I want to own copper out there and I want a junior copper developer, they're simply unaware of hot chili. And so it's about how do we fix that and how do we fix that in a way that isn't just typical house street promotion? How do we fix that in a way that uh, people look at this company is very, very legitimate? And when you take the time to understand what hot chili has achieved and what hot chili has become, uh, I think that people come away uh, come away with a very positive view. But look, I struggle with this as an investor. When you look at something and you go, it's cheap, what am I missing? There has to be something wrong. I'm missing something. And I think in this case it's 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 really it's really awareness and and we live in an environment and this year's been a tough year. Look, all equities unless you're involved in in lithium have have underperformed. And interestingly, as we look at asset classes, actually, the mining sector has held its own against other asset classes. So hard assets, they matter in an inflationary environment. But we're in an environment where nobody wants to hear about development, nobody. So those companies that on no matter what the commodity is that have done well on an individual basis, those have demonstrated growth. And that's the that's the exciting part of our industry. That's the expiration stories where people are living the dream and the reality is yet to come into it. Now I find that 
I, I struggle with this as an investor because when you look at a company like Hot Chili, uh, this is a company that has a material amount of money that's been spent in the ground. It's been de-risked on every level, and yet it has a lower valuation than a company that has a couple of really good drill holes. There's a disconnect in that, and it's it's our irrational it's our rational behavior as investors is when the upside is unknown, we assume it's limitless and it, and it never is. And it's like we get bored with something that is now a, a really good platform for investment. Okay, so, so what do you do? Because you're kind, of, you're kind of slow sleepwalking into an industry acquisition that whatever today's value is plus 25, 30% premium. You say that the solution is go talk to more people, make them aware of the story. So what are you going to say to them? Uh, <laughs> we're going to say what every company says, which was we're deeply undervalued. Uh, and and uh, but what specifically? Give, give me a bit. Right, you, you said to yourself, you, as an, you, if you look at the investor's hat on, it's slightly confusing to you. But what do they need to realise about you? That yes, you're all undervalued. But what have you got that people are not valuing? We've got an asset that will ultimately build, be built by us or somebody else. That's what they're not valuing. Uh, and and we have a commodity price environment. And if you look at the structural shortages of our underlying commodity, copper, over the next two to three years, that is, it is unbelievable. And I think Garrett Nagel just came out recently, and this is the way I feel about it. We as an industry, and particularly the juniors, sometimes we feel like we have to drive forward at all costs. We have to push, push, push. And ultimately, our strategy should be dictated by where we are in the cycle. And so we should be aggressively advancing this asset when the market is screaming at us to do that. And they will be screaming at us to do that when uh, that screaming uh, will be reflected in our underlying share price and obviously value. The problem with a company such as us is, is we want to retain optionality and flexibility. We're lucky enough in our, in our portfolio in Chile, we, we're not forced regulatory or permitting wise to continue driving forward in an inopportune time. We have now, the guys have spent seven years on trying to consolidate around this very prolific Cordillera district. We just announced that deal with AMSA. Uh, this is low-hanging fruit. This is incredible organic growth and on an NAV per share basis should deliver value to us with minimal capital expenditure. There's low geological risk, let's just say that. And so as we step back, it does not behoove us to continue driving forward, spending a lot of money on a PFS when we don't actually know what that mine will look like. We're reasonably confident that our resource base would get bigger. Why would you blow your brains out spending money on a development pipeline that may change? And how it works in Chile is that you have to have a very, very clear idea of what your ultimate mine plan and what your project looks like. You cannot change it pathway, halfway. You have to really go back to the start of the permitting process. Different countries have some leeway in that. And so as we're looking at this cycle, if the market isn't paying you to aggressively advance your asset, uh, spending a lot of money on, on a PFS that ultimately we don't think will be an accurate reflection of this project, why would we do that? And so what the messaging is, I think the clear messaging is, is that we have a of a, a property portfolio that has been given, whether you value it or not, it has been given by Glencore, the technical tick of approval, as they're a sizable investor in the company. They invested at much, much higher prices 
than what we are today. And let's face it, Glencore will have done way more due diligence than any other investor out there because they have access to a data room. So there was this this initial investment, I think, that uh, Glencore as a partner, the company has done a fantastic job of ensuring that, yes, Glencore is in there, but we are working in partnership with Glencore. They do not control the destiny of this company. So an example of that is the offtake agreement. It's only for 60%. It's at benchmark pricing. There's an eight-year life on that. And if Glencore chooses to dilute down at some period of time below 7.5%, the right to a board position and the right to that offtake ceases to exist. And I think we acknowledge that at the end of the day, exposure to a security of supply and offtake, is, that's, that's a strategic valuable asset in and of itself. And so if I look at this company, and in fact, if I look at all companies in the investable universe, if you have optionality and that's not just optionality to the underlying commodity price or how you move with our beta to copper. It's optionality with how do you strategize your business? How do you, as a company that has to access capital, all juniors do, how do we try and ensure that that capital that we access and that balance sheet that we have today, that we deploy that in a way that adds value, that adds value to our share price? Because at the end of the day, we live and die by our share price. And so as I look forward, what we're trying to holistic do is go, we have an amazing asset. No, we're not getting rewarded for that today. And so let's ensure that people are at least aware of the company. They are comfortable with their strategy, that they're comfortable that we're not going to go and dilute them into non-existence, which is what happens in the downtimes. If you insist on driving forward and that's not reflected in your share price, then ultimately you're doing ever more and more dilutive financings just to keep the lights on. Right. And have you got the board as it stands now to be able to kind of deliver that vision that story in into the market can we expect to see some new names and we, we saw one leave but will there be more coming in oh we had two leave and we just had announced one yesterday that you may have missed we were po- possibly remiss and oh, i've missed it yes that? oh new new canadian director it says here Who's yeah that? so stephen quinn who probably needs no introduction to the north american market so uh stephen was he's uh british National originally, he's been in Canada for 40 years. So geology by background, uh, international experience. He was uh, one of the founders of Sherwood Copper. And so in the last downturn and in the last, in from 2000 and to 2005 to 2007, I was a sell side analyst covering copper. And that's when I first met Stephen Quinn. So nobody believed in copper. I mean, that was when copper was 85 cents and nobody thought it was ever going to go above 95 cents. And, and I think Stephen and the team behind Sherwood Copper realized with Minto, they acquired an asset in the Yukon, a copper gold asset, and they managed to finance that in uh, in very, very bad times. And then very rarely in our sector, they took a copper project through on-time budget and on-time construction uh, in the Yukon of Canada and became an operating asset. That's a pretty rare feat in our business. Sherwood ultimately combined with Capstone. And uh, Stephen was uh, president uh, of Capstone and then segued into running Midas for 10 years. And so those, which is now Perpetua. So there's a lot of familiarity with the difficulties of permitting and, and also particularly the difficulties of permitting in North America. We could talk about political risk. It manifests itself in very, very, very different ways. He's very well restricted, restricted, respected by the international investing community. He has very diverse experience covering the whole cyclicity of the sector from expiration through to project 
financing through to construction to the production. So I think uh, it, it, it says something about Hot Chili that we've managed to attract a, a director of Stephen's calibre and international reputation to the board with very fit-for-purpose experience. Perfect. Okay, now, so let's, let's, let's talk about how you and the new team are going to release this value. You've kind of got, a, you've kind of got some short-term objectives you, you just uh, outlined there and the, you know, eventually maybe you guys are the guys that you know, bring this thing into production. Who knows? But um, can we deal with the short-term? You've got a little bit of money in the bank at the moment. Um, you told us some of the things that you feel you need to do and need to be able to tell the market. So how are you um, allocating that capital uh, and what are you going to do with it in 2023? So when we announced the answer uh, press release, which was the consolidation around Cordadera, so we've at the end of September had 15.5 million Australian on the balance sheet. Now, as everybody should be doing, we're looking at that balance sheet in terms of where we are in the cycle. And so we do have flexibility to uh, to pull back if things get very, very bad next year or also spend a little bit more aggressively if, if and that will be based on results driven. So the deal with AMSA, we think it's a fantastic deal. It's, uh, it's very good for both parties. It was an asset that was sitting in their portfolio that wasn't being advanced. So we, the, the deal with AMSA is 6,000 meters of drilling, 1.5 million US payment. They have the right to claw back after 120 days. Uh, if they're only going to claw back uh, 55% if it's a world-class asset. And so it's because it's a relatively small land package and we essentially surround them. So we feel like it's a win-win for both parties. Uh, having 45% of a world-class asset is better than having 0%. And so I think that, that that should generate some potential excitement. We all know we all get excited by positive draw results. So there's that, that aspect of the story. The promotion aspect is that's that's low economic cost. That is us uh, reaching out. Stephen and myself, we've got a lot of connections into the North American investing market. Now that this material news is in the market and Stephen has joined the board, uh, I think we both have a platform that we can start letting those in our own universe, those institutions in our own universe, become aware of the story. You want to own copper. And, and what's really interesting, I worked for a precious metals fund, and obviously precious metals companies often have a pretty sizable amount of copper, is lots of precious metals funds, they're having problems attracting capital inflows into uh, the precious metals side. So they're segueing and starting uh, net zero funds or energy transition funds, et cetera, et cetera. And so to be able to bring them a story of this caliber with this kind of this kind of uh, resource base with a lot of those economic hurdles that have been de-risked, de-risked, and obviously I think Chile has settled down a little bit from an international perception of risk perspective, then it, it's this perfect story for people to start becoming aware of. And so I keep saying it, it's, it's, it's about awareness and, and that the company, we don't, we don't need to change anything at the management side. Now, again, the management is fit for purpose. We have a team that has absolutely excelled at consolidating assets and doing it very patiently and building, building relationships and adding enormous, then adding enormous value onto those assets. And so it's our job as we, as we manage this next probably year to 18 months of uncertainty, investors are feeling nervous. We're in a highly inflation environment. You don't want to be building something today, nor do you want to be coming out with an economic study in the near future because you're going to get penalized on the capex and the opex, but you're not going to get a win on the commodity price. And so let's ensure 
that we strategize our business as best as we can in the context of where we are in the market. The, the, the joys of being a, a mining CEO or, or chairman. Um, at the moment, it's quite tough. You're right, the economic study is coming out and you're getting penalized for what should be good, good news, but inflation has, 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 you know, made it difficult, difficult indeed. Um, let's talk about some of the other things you, you talk about there. You talk about, you know, that Chile has settled down. Obviously, the, the new government coming that, that came in, um, the noises being made weren't particularly positive, and also some of the issues around e- ESG and getting uh, m- uh, permits and licenses. It seemed difficult. Now, as someone who's just bought a copper mine in Chile and your shareholders looking in and going, What's the reality on the ground? Is is it as messy as it seems for people looking in from outside? I think every single country has risk and it manifests it to itself in different ways. And the Queensland government, for example, I was born in Queensland, they whacked a 40% royalty on all coal mines. You can actually do that in Chile. Uh, you can't do that in Brazil. It's You have to have a vote that goes through Congress. And so, yes, there's a lot of noise. You have a change in government. You've got a big swing to the left in Latin America. Uh, but it's, it's the reality of that swing. And so I think there was a lot of noise, a lot of negativity and rhetoric about Chile. And everybody gets emotional and starts. Uh, you have a lot of arm, armchair experts that don't live on the ground. And, and I suppose that's why it's so important to have people that are from that country in in material positions in a company like Hot Chile that can advocate on the company's behalf and also provide a realistic guidance and assessment of what's going on. And so speaking to our team on the ground and my fellow director who lives in, who's a Chilean and lives in Chile is they've, I think, never been as concerned as perhaps some of the market. And we've seen that fear go away. Uh, The referendum on the changes in the constitution was a resounding no. We've just seen a big trade agreement announced between the EU and Chile. Uh, I thought it was an interesting description of Chile being the Saudi Arabia of this decarbonisation and and shift to net zero. It's a very good description. And so uh, mining is a very, very important part of the Chilean economy. I think that at the end of the day, there will be political rhetoric and then how do you deal with the realities on the ground? I think that Chile is is uh, nothing, despite all of this noise, et cetera, nothing has really changed on the ground that much. Will we see some changes in taxes and royalties? Probably. Uh, at the moment, I'd say it's more favourable than uh, than Canada and Australia. Will it move in line with both of those countries? Probably. But I think that at the end of the day, you can't kill the hand that feeds you. And and I, I've said this on numerous occasions, we in the mining sector, uh, we we have a very, it's the biggest challenge we face globally. We have very, very negative reputation. It's because nobody understands where their stuff comes from. And so I think I have a very elegant solution to this is that all mining companies on all commodities, we should just stop. Let's just stop mining. Let's just do it for a month or two. The world will very viscerally realize. Um, we're very, very, we're extremely good at, at, at producing commodities in a low price environment. And we've become better and better at doing that. So I think we need to, to change our little mentality a little bit. And I thought it was fascinating. I think I just said it earlier in this conversation when Nagel came out and said, we are not bringing any more supply on until the copper price is a lot higher than day, because that's a true reflection of this. It's midterm supply demand imbalance. So Chile, uh, I feel very comfortable. I was there earlier this year. Uh, I think that sometimes you just have to distill the reality from the noise. I, 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 I crack it. I, I wish I wish that was the simplest. You know, it's just adding tools. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Um, I, I <laughs> no, it actually would work. Has taken, 
Yeah, well, the uranium sector has pretty much taken that uh, stance, and and you know, mob, mobile inventory is being mopped up uh, there at a rate of knots, and, and, and I think there'll be a, a quick move in, in price for them. Okay, so if I look at if I look at what you just said, you said to me, look, we're going to remain kind of keep our options open in terms of how we allocate capital next year, depending on how the market is valuing. Um, and right now, it's not valuing economic studies, so it, it would makes sense to, well, would it, what would it make sense to do? Would it make sense to do more drilling? Would it make more sense to maybe look at some M&A activity? You know, obviously, it's a bit of a low base at the moment, and, and maybe the cost of that at, at this moment may seem expensive, or, or maybe not. I don't know what stranded assets are out there. How, how, how do you kind of change, change and shake things up over and above what you've already told us? I think that you always, as a management team you and a board, you always have to be open to whatever is best for your shareholders at the end, the owners of your business at the end of the day. And so uh, M&A, or theoretically, all companies are looking at all companies and all assets all of the time. That's, that's how it should be. Um, and it shouldn't be about protecting your job and it shouldn't be, and, and I've heard it anecdotal evidence, for instance, there's always social issues with M&A, but it's not management teams. It's now directors that want to stay on with NUCO and that are curtailing very, very sensible M&A. Look, our sector across all commodities, it needs consolidation. Size does matter, as it turns out in mining, and that's partly because to attract the marginal institutional investor, they, they, they need a certain size and liquidity to even attract them. And so the challenge that we face too is when speaking to big institutions, they go, look, we love the story, but we can't invest unless you do a whopping great big financing or unless you're three times where you are today. So come back to us when you're a half a billion dollar company and then we'll be happy to be part of that story. And so it's this um, M&A is not a bad thing. We've got to stop looking at it like it is. It can be very, very, very value accretive. But this company has shown that it's very good at consolidating assets. We've just consolidated another couple of assets for a very low economic cost. And at the end of the day, organic growth that's been driven, that is true organic growth, that is contiguous with your existing asset portfolio, that's very, very high value reward for a, a pretty low investment. I think that this group will always be on the lookout for what's going on uh, or what's available in the country. I think that one of the reasons why Glencore probably invested in the company is they recognise this. They recognise this company's ability to con- to to get deals done. Uh, and I think the market doesn't recognise it. And so that's something that we have to start to maybe filtrate into the market. But I would say that Glencore recognises that. So I would say all options have to be on the table and we need to make the decision to do what's best at the most appropriate point in time. Now, I just wanted to circle back to something a little bit. It's a, it, it, it's a pet hate of mine is where you see uh, companies that come out with a, oh, we've done a feasibility study and now we're going to start financing. The minute you produce an economic study, it's out of date. So it's also managing how you go through that project financing process and ensuring that you bring the providers of capital along with you. And so, because if you have a feasibility study and then you're talking to uh, the various providers out there, they're going to ask for different changes, et cetera. And so the other thing that as we're looking forward and as we move to completing a PFS, the time to bring or and make the capital providers, and let's face it, capital providers, they have capital allocation pressure too. So there's debt funds out there that have capital. They don't get paid until they deploy that capital. We've seen this proliferation in the royalty and streaming space, particularly on the precious metal side. We went from three main companies a decade ago to plus 20 today. They themselves are having consolidation. 
And this is a, a financing mechanism that I think is pretty unknown in Australia, but is very well known. And, and I think it, 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 people are comfortable with in North America is there's also that streaming royalty model. We have this precious metals component. We have over 3 million ounces of total M&I and inferred. That's a very, very hefty. I mean, this is a gold company of its own right if we wanted to separate that out. But it's it's worth a relatively smaller part of the whole entire project's NAV. And so we have this 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 uh, lazy balance sheet commodity, if you want to think about it, that we can think of very interesting, intriguing ways to finance around that. And so again, as I talk about flexibility and optionality, we don't have to make decisions today, but we have to ensure that we keep our flexibility open. And so we have a whole bunch of ways that we can finance this. And people look and go, you're a $100 million company. How can you finance a plus $1 billion build? Well, of course, we're not going to finance that today. But we're also going to ensure that we try to do it in a way that it provides the most accretion possible. And so we, we're we also ensuring that as, we, as, as we're getting hot chili known, better known, I think, on the investing community, ensuring that corporates are very aware of the company and what we have, and also ensuring that the royalty streaming sector is aware of what we have. And at some point in time, at the right point in time, as we make those uh, decisions with respect to financing our business that we do it in a way that is an overused word, but is that is thoughtful and and is provides the least dilution possible on an on an NAV. Do you think? Basis. Do you think? Do you think your shareholders understand the giving away of the you know a chunk of the future upside is necessary if you've kind of got a, well the kind of balancing that you're going to need to kind of to get this thing funded and the amount of time it's going to take and you, that itself takes takes money do you think people understand the need to have lots of alternative ways to keeping the the you know the company at the table to be able to play the game um to be able to keep keep the company going long enough to actually take advantage of the value that's in the ground at the moment which people are not giving you value for uh, it, it you know what I mean? I'm kind of trying to work out where you're being penalised. Is it because people are just terrified of the size of the capex required to actually execute the value from this and how the heck you navigate those choppy waters and who you have to bring in? I know you've got Glencore, but Glencore is everywhere. They've got <laughs> lots of things that they're looking at. So how are they going to help you? Who else can help you? Look, I think I think all investors, anyone that, that starts to merge into that development group, everyone is petrified. And we've seen a couple of recent examples of this where the leaders of that company have basically said, I don't care about the owners of the business and have diluted themselves in excess of 100% to finance a project when the market is clearly telling you, do not go forward today. So I think that if you can start getting investor faith and trust that you are not going to be that company uh, then there'll be more of an ease or a willingness to be exposed. So I think we have all those ingredients. It's now just a matter of, of building that trust to say that we are going to be sensible. We are not going to destroy uh, those. We're going to have a great deal of respect for the owners of the business. And, and I'm, I have been buying shares in the market. We keep getting serially restricted at, at much higher prices than when we are today is that, is that, we have to get that message across. And that's the scary part for an investor being exposed in a company like this, that we're going to wake up one day and they're just going to go, oh, my God, the company has done something insanely stupid. We don't want to be that company. So we have to message that we will be disciplined and that we'll, that we'll take the right approach. Now, circling back to your question is I think some people don't understand that is that 
to finance your business, you're either diluting at the asset level or you're diluting at the equity level. One way or the other, there's dilution. So, but if you're getting money today for future production, that is on the, based on, on any normalized financial approach to valuing our business, that will always be accretive because it's money in the bank today. Now, what we have with the royalty and streaming space is if you're a gold, uh, a precious metals royalty streaming company, you're trading at a premium to your underlying value. So that gives you enormous flexibility with which how they can operate their business. So they can afford to do deals that are very, very low IRR to them because every resource they bring into that company, every little ounce of production and ounce of resource and reserve that they bring into that company, they get more value for that than we do. So if they get value for something and it lowers our cost of capital, why would we not consider it? We would be insane not to. Now, believe me, I'm not an advocate of ever putting a stream or a royalty on your primary commodity. Our primary commodity is copper. For us, gold is a byproduct, but it's a very sizable gold product. We're producing uh, the current forecast based on what we know today, you know, circa 70,000 ounces a year. Now, there's a whole bunch of ways that we can potentially monetize that. Now, am, am I saying we're going to do it today or are we going to make that decision? No, but what I'm trying to get across here is that we have options. And having having multiple commodities in our in our asset mix, that's a great thing. And it's how do we leverage off that? Well, Nikki, I can't wait to find out next year uh, when you start you know start sharing some of these decisions or give give the market some kind of guidance as to how how you kind of move forward. Twenty twenty three, hopefully better than twenty twenty two. Appreciate your time, Nikki. Thank you. You too. Thanks a lot, Matt.